are in um, a new season of the church calendar. If you remember, Christmas is not just one day. It's a, it's a season called Christmas Christmastide. It lasts 12 days. Um, and um, as Advent is a season of waiting, Christmas is a season of celebrating. So try to keep your celebration going until January, through January 5th, if you can. Whatever that means for you, do it. Um, in the late 1950s, a psychologist named Kurt Danziger was teaching at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And he asked like 430-some students to take part in an experiment in which they were asked to pretend that they were historians in the distant future who were writing an essay about the second half of the 20th century. Again, this late 50s, second half of the 20th century had not yet happened. And so the whole thing was they had to make a prediction about how things would go in South Africa and in the world. Now, this is during the apartheid era in South Africa. And virtually all of the 400-plus students taking part wrote about this, each of them making a prediction about how things would go. And what he found, his results were that 66% of black Africans and 80% of immigrants, people of color from India, people who were on the, the, the business end of apartheid, um, predicted that apartheid would come to an end, while only 4% of the white Afrikaners thought the same thing. Interesting, huh? And so Danziger's famous conclusion was that the more desirable a future is for us and our group, the more likely we are to predict that that future will actually happen. He, he wrote, those who were the beneficiaries of the existing state of affairs were extremely reluctant to predict its end. No kidding, right? While those who felt oppressed by the same situation found it all too easy to foresee its collapse. This is still pretty early on in, in terms of psychological research, but it's been tested many times in many different ways over and over, and it's always kind of held true. If the way things are pretty good for you and your group, it's hard to imagine things changing. And if things stink for you, um, you're pretty likely to predict that a change is on the horizon. It's just sort of the way we're wired. It's neurobiology. In fact, Really, you can look all across any civilizations of, which, civilizations of which we have a record. Humans have always built mental models of how the world works and then used those models to try and predict the future. For a long time, the, the model was really, they looked to the stars for their predictions. Some consulted oracles and fortune tellers or um, magicians. Others had wise men and prophets they looked to. In the era of modernity, we looked mostly to science. They were, they were the fortune tellers. And today, we look to computers. It's big data and, and statistical modeling. They promise a, a, an accurate forecast of the future. And yet, if you step back and really look at it critically, the one thing that all of these methods have in common is they don't work very well. None of them. Humans are just really bad at predicting the future. I read back some old, through some old polling this week. Did you know that in 2005, so not that long ago, 15, 16 years ago, 32%, so roughly a third, of the experts, the best experts on the internet and what it was going to be in the future. 32% of the experts thought that in the future people would use the internet 
in ways that filter out information that challenges their point of view on politics and social issues. One in three in 05. And then 10 years later, by 2015, that very phenomenon was really, I mean, it was ripping us apart as a society. We're just that bad at predicting the future, especially a future that is undesirable for us. In 1876, the head of Western Union, um, so this is the telegraph people, he um, made a prediction that the telephone would never catch on. That's what he thought. In fact, um, Alexander Graham Bell offered to sell him the patent for the telephone for $100,000. Can you imagine making that bet? Um, but he thought, yeah, this is, this is not going to happen. It's, it's too, too much of a pain. People aren't going to want this. In 1903, Henry Ford's banker predicted that, um, he said this, the horse is here to stay, but automobiles are just a fad. Like, he could not have gotten that more wrong. In 1906, John Philip Sousa, you know that dude, like the guy who wrote, wrote all the marches, he was a composer and, and, and conductor. He predicted that recorded music would destroy all musical ability in the future. Nobody would learn how to play instruments anymore. In 1946, Daryl Zanuck was head of the 20th Century Fox studio, one of the major movie um, studios. He predicted that television would never catch on. He said, nobody's going to want to stare at a little rectangle in their house all the time. They'll get tired of this. In 1995, Clifford Stoll, who was running Newsweek at the time, predicted that no website would ever replace your daily newspaper. And in 2007, this is one of the most famous ones, Microsoft head Steve Ballmer predicted that there was no way that the iPhone would ever get significant market share in the cell phone market, right? And you see what they all have in common. They, they all had a lot riding on the status quo in the future. A dramatic change was not in their interest, and so it was really hard to imagine something like that ever happening. But it did happen. All of those things happened. In fact, the, the list of those things, telephone, automobile, recorded music, television, online news, iPhones, I mean, these things have had a revolutionary impact on culture. These are the kinds of things that make you kind of force society to rethink almost everything in our understanding of how the world works and our model of the world and what it'll be like in the future. That's just a little sampling of a few from the past century or so. And there are many more of these kinds of things because most of our predictions about the future turn out to be wrong. We're just constantly, you know, missing it and then asked to rethink our model of reality in light of those kind of revolutionary events. And I think the birth of Christ can be seen as one of those kind of revolutionary events, maybe the mother of all revolutions. When God showed up in human flesh, religious Jews in ancient Palestine would have to seriously rethink everything that they thought they knew about God and, and their world. It's interesting if you think about it, we know actually a, kind of a lot about Jesus' birth story. Mary and Joseph and their situation, betrothed by their families, then she turns up pregnant, and then there's these dreams that happen, and so they go through with it. There's angels speaking. We, we know that somewhere around 6 BC, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that the family fled to Egypt, 
And then when they came back, they, they went to a whole different part up in the Galilee to, to Nazareth after Herod died. We know then the year that Jesus' ministry began, Luke tells us, in the 15th year of the reign of um, Tiberius Caesar, that's 28 AD, he began his ministry. But th- there's this big gap, and we, and we have very few details about Jesus' childhood. We know that he grew up um, in Mary and Joseph's house, and we know a couple of other important things that, that actually can tell us a few things. One, we know that he grew up as a religious Jew in Galilee, which actually kind of tells us a lot. It tells us that his life would have been ordered by Torah and by his local Jewish community, especially the synagogue. We know that he would have kept dietary laws and hygiene laws, that he would have studied the Hebrew scriptures, and we know that he actually did because he quoted them quite a bit. We know that he prayed the Hebrew prayers and memorized the Psalms, that he observed Sabbath and attended the synagogue, that he observed the festivals each year. I mean, Jesus was an observant first century Palestinian Jew, which means that he was raised among a bunch of people who were serious about their religion. And he seemed to be so as well. Now, what I mean by religion, I should clarify. Um, What I'm talking about involves submitting to a particular tradition for the purpose of human formation, including our mental model of of the world. That's what I mean by religion. So this is why things like 24-hour cable news or political ideologies or science or even um, things like consumerism can operate like religions pretty easily. In fact, I I would submit that's probably somewhere on that list as most people. I am trying to be submitted to the Christian tradition, and not because it's perfect or always gets things right, but mostly because my parents were Christians. That's why. And they raised me that way. If they would have been something else, I'd probably be that. And, And kind of the same thing was true of Christ. He was an observant Jew because his parents were observant Jews. Now, I continue to submit to the Christian tradition because of the way that it shapes me as a person. I find it human and humane and humanizing. And it gives me a foundation from which to think about life and how to learn how to love and even how to build a mental model that can help me predict the the future, hopefully a little more accurately than, than others, still inaccurately, but then a way to do the necessary rethinking that comes up. It's required. So so religion is not meant to be about mind control. That's really bad religion. Religion is about submitting to an ancient story or tradition and kind of the practices that are involved with that for the purpose of soul formation. For us, we use the language of we're, we're doing this so we can become human as human was meant to be. That's, that's what we're chasing. Which we also say requires nearly constant rethinking of our beliefs and and our lives. There's this ancient Greek philosopher named Heraclitus, which is a killer name. Somebody needs to name their kid Heraclitus. I mean, it's just sitting there waiting on it to happen. He lived around the time of kind of Nehemiah and Ezra, so before Socrates. And he said this, No man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river 
and he is not the same man. If you watch Marvel, Wanda, anybody know this? This line was quoted as though, as though Vision made it up. He didn't, Heraclitus did. Um, no man ever steps in the same, there were three of us who got that joke. Um, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. So he's using river as a metaphor because it's constantly changing and flowing, right? In every moment. So every time you step into the same, what you would call the same river, it's actually become a different river in a purely physical sense. And this is actually one of those thoughts that makes gives people the freaks a little bit. It's really scary to some people because they think it's just like a slippery slope, a way of saying nothing is real, nothing matters, nothing means anything, everything is meaningless if it's always changing. But that's not what Heraclitus is saying. In fact, he actually clarified what he meant. He said this, the meaning of the river flowing is not that all things are changing so that we cannot encounter them twice, but that some things stay the same only by changing. And I think human beings are one of those things. To be human is to be the kind of thing that can stay the same only by changing. And so, in effect, to refuse to change and grow is to diminish our humanity. You end up becoming either kind of mindless robots who can't rethink things or violent enforcers of the status quo who won't rethink things. And to refuse to rethink our lives will end up making us less human over time. Because to be human is to be the kind of thing that stays the same only by changing. Now, from the record of Christ's life, we know that he was also serious about spirituality, which is kind of different from religion, although they overlap. Spirituality refers um, to the habits and rhythms and practices that help us engage with God and our tradition. They root us in this, and then they shape us. So for us, we talk about Sabbath-keeping and tithing. We talk about weekly worship and daily prayer, about community and solitude, and about being paired always with the outcasts. These are central practices to Christian spirituality. Now, let me throw a twist in the plot here. One of the major themes of the New Testament is that Jesus' spirituality, and by this I mean his rhythms of prayer and worship, his community, his solitude, his being paired with the outcasts in his environment. Jesus' spirituality led him to question and rethink his own religion, the Jewish faith. And Jesus didn't have a problem with religion in general. He sometimes gets portrayed as saying, don't do religion, do spirituality. That's, that's, he wasn't against religion, just bad religion, like purity codes, violence, um, exclusivity, the triumphalism, the nationalism that had grown up. He was very against that. He went hard after Jewish nationalism or any kind of nationalism. And, and his spirituality, Christ's spirituality, seems to have led him to, to question those kinds of things, and to emphasize God's call instead to love and mercy 
and nonviolence and enemy love and justice. And so it's, it's an interesting question when, when you stage our story here. Um, what happened in that gap between when he was born and when he shows up, you know, at the Jordan 33, 34 years later and started turning the world on his head? And the truth is, we don't, we don't know. We don't know much about what happened. We know what his religion was and what his spirituality was like. But we really only have one story, and it's our text for today that we just heard read. I'm going to read it again. See if you can kind of imagine yourself tagging along with Mary and Joseph on this ride. Now, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, as usual, for the festival. And when the festival was ended, they started to return. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. Mark that three days in your mind. It's not the last time Mary would be searching for him for three days, right? Sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And he said to them, Why why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. And I'm assuming this is a deeper, did not understand than the normal, don't understand what your teenagers are saying to you, right? And then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things. Here she goes again, treasuring, pondering in her heart. And Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. About two years before this story happened, there was a Jewish uprising in Galilee. It's really famous. It was in a town called Sepphoris, about a five-mile walk from Nazareth. And Jesus would have been about 10 years old at the time it happened. And Rome had decided that the Galilee needed a proper Roman city, and so they dumped a ton of money into building Sepphoris. And we know that the Greek word carpenter, he gets called a carpenter. Carpenter really meant construction worker. That's what that means. It didn't mean table furniture maker. It meant construction work. They mostly work with rocks. And so it's highly likely that Joseph helped build Sepphoris. And at the age of 10, um, Jesus was probably helping him as well by that time. And this uprising over there was a labor revolt. It was a strike. They were protesting unfair treatment and pay and just sort of general economic injustice. And when it was over, the Roman soldiers crucified 2,000 Jewish men on the road outside of Sepphoris. And so Jesus had seen firsthand what happens for people who rethink Roman Empire. We're told here that every year Mary and Joseph went to Passover in Jerusalem. And so Jesus had made this trip before. He knew the way. He knew the, the procedures. But this year is different, not just because he stayed behind, but he was 12. And, and 
12 is probably an older 12 in their day than it is in our day. Um, and he was doing some rethinking and some questioning. Um, Jewish law states that only men, Jewish men, are required to go to the festival, and they only are required to stay for two days. But we're told his whole family, just the big old clan of them, went, and they stayed till the very end, which tells us they, they were very devout. And when the festival concluded, the big group of family and friends took off, headed back to Galilee, a whole day's walk, probably 10, 15 miles. And when they stopped to build fires and camp and make dinner, Jesus wasn't with the group. Anybody ever lost a kid in public? Anyone? Has it happened to you? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We, we lost um, Nicholas at a church picnic one time. We were at the T-Bones game. Remember, Monarchs used to be T-Bones. And he went to the playground with one of his friends and a, and a mother and somehow wandered off. And we get this frantic call on the cell phone from the mom going, I cannot find Nick. And that terror that hits you, it's extreme. And um, we started searching frantically, and it was a while. I mean, 10, 15 minutes, and it felt like hours. Finally, we heard over the PA at the, at the whole stadium, folks, we have a cute little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy here at customer service or guest services. If you'd like to come pick him up and take him up, that'd be great. And I got to tell you, like, I'm in decent shape. I run a lot. I had to sprint to keep up with Kristen, who was flying to customer service. Uh, that's Mary. That's her state of mind in this moment. It says, when they couldn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem. I assume that returned means a 10 to 15 mile jog slash walk all night long to get back there as soon as they could. And then they got there and it took three days to find this kid. Can you imagine what they're feeling? I mean, that's long enough in, in our day to file a missing persons report which means he wasn't in any of the usual places you would expect to find a 12-year-old boy. And when they finally found him, he was at the temple, apparently the last place they thought to look. Now, when you find your kid, if you've lost your kid, when you find your kid, the first thought you have is, thank God you're alive. The second thought you have is, I'm going to kill you, right? (laughs) And we're told that Mary is astonished, which in the Greek means, I'm going to kill you, right? (laughs) This was a a genuinely traumatic situation for Mary and Joseph. Child, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. Uh, Although for me, I imagine it was the clenched teeth. In great anxiety, right? With those teeth clenched, she's upset. And she calls him child which had to grind his gears a little bit. He was 12. The age of adulthood in in his world was 13. That's when he was a man. She called him child. Plus, he was sitting with the rabbis. The the King James Version uh, translates it, the doctors. These are the scholars. He's holding his own with the scholars, and she calls him child. And so Mary's interpretation is that Jesus is in the wrong here. He's being childish. That's what she thinks. He's being disrespectful to his, his parents and his family. And her question is legit. How could you do something like this? And what follows are actually the earliest recorded words of Jesus in the scriptures. He says, why were you searching for me? And you just know right there his back gets slapped. Like, <laughs> like Joseph is holding Mary back at this point. 
this would not be the last time that Mary didn't understand what her son was doing and saying. We're told that he was sitting among the teachers and listening and asking questions. We, we, don't, we don't really know how much Mary and Joseph told him about his birth. We don't even know really how much they understood. But he's 12 years old and he's trying to you know, make sense of his life. He's about to be a man. Plus, he's no ordinary 12-year-old. But you got to wonder how much detail they gave him about the virgin birth and, and the star. Certainly knew about Herod and Africa and surely the angel's prediction that he would be Messiah. Um, and, and with that kind of prediction about his life, you know he was wondering, what did the scriptures say about Messiah? What's, especially, what's this stuff in Isaiah about the suffering servant? Like, explain that thing to me. And even, there's a hint of this in there, who's my father? And what does it mean to do God's will? I mean, not your totally normal 12-year-old questions. In fact, the whole scene is anything but normal. He seems to be aware that he's different. But we don't know what he was thinking. You know, Jesus, it's very unlikely that he knew he was God from the beginning. Most scholars think he didn't really realize until the resurrection. And so he's wondering, he's trying to put things together, he's rethinking some things, struggling to update his model of the world. I especially always wonder what they told him about Joseph. I mean, there's some tension here in the text around fatherhood. Did you notice that? Mary says, your father and I have been searching for you. And Jesus answers, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I think they're thinking about different fathers. Is this a dig? At Joseph, it wasn't a typical thing to say about the Lord. We don't know what the scholars were talking about when they were talking with him. Only that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This kid had answers. And, and he wasn't given Sunday school answers because they were amazed. He was hitting with the pros here, rethinking already the foundations of their religion. And kind of the subtext to his answer to Mary was something like, don't lecture me about my obligations to my father. That's all I can think about are my obligations. You remember the angel, right? And the star and the magi and the songs, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna. Do you remember what they said I was going to do? I'm supposed to be Messiah and I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. And I need to know. Did you not know that I must be, he said, in my father's house? It's interesting. The, the Greek word house is not in the sentence. It's not in the text. It, it just ends with pater, father. So it's like, I must be about my father's dot, dot, dot. The interpreters put in business or house there. But that's an that's a interpretive gloss. He, he just leaves it blank. And it's like his whole conversation here is just him trying to fill in the blank. I must be about my father's dot, dot, dot in this angst. What is his father's business? What has God got to? He was trying to predict the future, and nobody is very good at that. And he's trying to answer the question of the meaning of his life, and he's, he's going to have to rethink everything. 
And so I want to suggest that this is actually the kind of shift we all have to make. From, you know, childlike faith, or maybe childish faith, to grown-up Christianity. From being about our family's business, you know, just the status quo, going with the flow, to the business of God's call on our lives. Or you could say that we have to also find a way to let our own spirituality call into question our religion. And so it becomes important what our spirituality even is. And the problem with this, of course, is that we're really bad at predicting the future. Where should we be heading? And as with many things, I think Mary shows us the way here. Um, she not only lost track of Jesus, she was losing him. And you, you can almost tell she knows it here. She's losing her safe little boy, you know, her companion since she was just a girl herself. Mary had always had Jesus. She nursed him. She raised him. She taught him to speak and to walk. And then she lost him and was frantic. And then she went seeking after him for three days. And then she found him that he was different somehow. And so Mary had to rethink her relationship to her son. His life could not be bound by her expectations. It would be bound by God's design for it as all lives must be. Mary had Jesus, and then she lost him, and then she sought after him, and she found him at the temple. Only he was different now. And she had to rethink some things. She had to say once again her famous line, let it be, let it be unto me according to your word. She's our example. Years later, actually, she would lose him again, he traveled down to, to the Jordan outside Jerusalem to see his cousin John preaching. And he was baptized in the river and then embraced by God and then driven into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested and tried. And by the time he went home to Nazareth and started teaching to the people who, who knew him, he started sharing his ideas with them, they tried to kill him. Mary went searching for him. He had to leave Nazareth. He was moved over to Capernaum. She moved over there, you know, ostensibly to, to rein him back in. And crowds were flocking to him to hear him teach. Mary must have grabbed somebody outside the house that she knew and said, go tell Yeshua, you know, his mom is here and his brothers and his sisters and he better get out here really quick, right? And he says, who is my mother, my brothers, my sisters? Anyone who does the will of my father, they are my re real family. He's rethinking Jewish family. You don't mess with that. And once again, Mary had lost Jesus and then found Jesus, but he was different now. And she and the family would have to rethink the way they saw him, the way they relate to him. Some of them, by the way, became his ardent followers. And there's a sense in which Mary was the first Christian. James, his brother, became one of the, the leader of the church after, you know, Peter and Paul were, were dead. Years later, Mary lost Jesus again on Good Friday to a Roman cross. And she went searching for him again too. Took three days again. And she found him again on Easter morning. 
Only he was different this time. Again. And she would have to rethink everything again. You guys, this is it. This is the process that we have to go through in our lives. And it really splits the world into people who know how to keep faith in it and people who just want things to stay the same. But we know that that is the path to becoming less human, not more human. And so there are just times when our spirituality has to just stake everything on God's guidance and say, I don't know how this works out, but nothing seems where it was before. You have to lead me. And it's that experience, I think, of losing Jesus. You know, understand that's just a metaphor for this thing that happens. I'm guessing you know what I mean. We have Jesus. We have God, the spirit, the presence. It seems natural. And then something happens and we lose God. It's like everything goes dark. We lose the handle that we had on faith and on life and the answers that we had that made sense of the world. The model we had, it can't predict the future that is now the present. And we have to search and seek and seek for God. And it doesn't come like overnight. But if we hang in there, we'll, we'll find God because God wants to be found. But we have to brace ourselves because it's very likely God will not be the same as God was before. God will be different. And so will we. And we'll see God in a different light in ourselves too. And we'll have to rethink some things. Our model of the world, our religious beliefs, we'll have to let some things go in order to just let God be God instead of the version of God that we're attached to. I often say that if the you of today doesn't call the you of five years ago a heretic, you're doing it wrong. Like, at least in some way, one or two ways. God allows this progression to happen because God wants us to grow up and to become more human. Otherwise, what are we worshiping, you know? The God of the status quo? We lose Jesus sometimes. We do. It's really hard for parents to watch this happen with your kids, man. I know it is. We just go squirmy. It's so difficult. It's like Mary and Joseph. We seek, though, we seek God after we lose God. And eventually we find God, but God seems different. And then we have to do this rethinking. It's exhausting. And the search for God in those moments when it feels like God has been lost can feel quite frantic and out of control and kind of scary. Especially for those who have, you know, like a tight theological hold on God. And these are the folks who usually, we've talked about this, they're, they're the ones who rail against people who are deconstructing. You know, not to be harsh, but I mean, that's just immaturity that needs to be addressed. Rethinking is essential and good. It is dead center of what it means to follow Jesus. And it's not something we can predict how it needs to go. And it's really not something we're in control of. We can't predict the future, man. We're terrible at it. Jesus one time said, the wind blows where it blows. Can you control the wind? You have to put up your sails and go with it. And that means we have to just keep on faithing it. Submit to our tradition. 
work the practices of the faith even when they don't make sense. And we have to keep on changing just to stay the same, just to stay human. And we need a robust spirituality, habits and rhythms and practices that can sustain us through that kind of change. And I think the norm of the Christian life is really that God will ask us to, to walk the path that Mary walked, to, to rethink nearly everything we believe. And we either shore it up or, and believe it more deeply, or we kind of file it with a lot of the other arcane things that we no longer do anymore. We just, remember the rock wall analogy, we just carry it forward and build it in, but we don't build our whole faith on that thing. And this is how we let God be the God who is, not the God we need God to be. What, what happened to Mary? It's going to happen to all of us. We'll have God for a while, and, and then we'll lose God, and then we'll go seeking, and it will be excruciating. But if we keep faithing it, God wants to be found by us. But God will be different, and so will we. And we'll have to rethink our model of reality. And this this is it. And then when you get done, you get just a little bit of peace, and then you fly right back up to the beginning, and it just never stops. And if you work it over time, you just become more and more alive and more and more human. And, and I know it, it takes a lot of trust and faith to work this, that we won't go off the rails. This is why we have religion and tradition to keep us together and moving forward. But this is not meant to harm us. It's meant to make us more alive, more human. And since we see this rethinking in the life of Jesus himself, in the life of Mary, and in the life of the 12 who followed him real closely, then I think we can trust it and we can imitate it. We have Mary as a guide. She's such a great guide in so many ways. And um, we have Christ as our guide too. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story and that um, you gave us at least one little glimpse into Jesus when he was a young man. And uh, the courage of Mary all throughout her life just watching this happen over and over and how she just kept on faith in it we, we draw to mind this kind of pathway that she walked just for a moment I want us to uh let me say the words and you, you just kind of try to find a place of reverence inside your own soul and, and see if you can discern where you are right now. Is it the place where you have God, it's secure, where God seems lost? Where you're seeking actively? Where you've found God, but now everything seems rearranged and God seems different in you too? Are you in a season of rethinking 
or are you in a kind of a season of peacefulness where, where you have God again? Where are you in this? My prayer for you and for all of us is that we can um, just embrace where we are, keep on faithing it, and trust that God has us. Amen. I invite you to stand, please, and we're going to receive communion. And I know our, our kiddos are in here. They usually come in later and join us. You're invited to join us at the table. We call on anybody who um, calls on the name of Christ to join us um, in this feast. Um, if, if the bar is you have to be able to explain what's going on in communion, then nobody can receive communion. So we're just like, come and eat, right, at the table. Um, the reason we, we do this is on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and um, after supper, he, he broke it and blessed it, and then he passed it around and had his guys eat it, his apostles. And he, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took one cup, and he blessed it, and he passed it around. They all drank from the same cup. And he said, this cup is um, the new covenant in my blood. Blood meant life. A new deal, covenant, between you and God in my life that's rooted in my life. And he said, every time you get together, drink this cup, eat this bread, take my life, my way of being into your life, become made out of that, and then go out into the world to be the bread, the, the salt that others feast on and others can see is worth chasing. And so this is why we do it. He just said, every time you get together, just do this simple symbolic meal and receive me once again and then head out. And so we invite anyone to join us at the table. Let's, before we do this, let's, let's pray for the elements. Do you pray with me? Lord, we ask your blessing upon this table, this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All of this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?